Hey everyone, I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. Last month was the fourth anniversary of my stroke, my strokeiversary, if you will. I usually post something about it each year on the date, and people often comment to say they didn't realize that on top of Chris's ALS diagnosis, we dealt with this as well. And to be honest, it does often get lost in the shuffle of sadness in our life. I was 34 years old when I had my stroke. I was in the hospital for six days. For most of those, I couldn't sit up without tipping over. When I got home, my mom, who was visiting from South Dakota because of my stroke, had to help me wash and dry my hair. I needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night so I didn't fall over. It was traumatic, yes, but I find that now I often minimize it in my mind. Not long after I started doing this podcast in an episode with Chris, I listed off a bunch of horrible things that have happened to us. And after listening to it, a friend texted me to point out that I actually left my stroke out of the list entirely. Even in my own subconscious, it often feels like my stroke doesn't really count when it comes to the serious things that have happened in our family. Like it probably wasn't really that bad. I've been thinking about this episode for a while and putting it off and putting it off. All week long, I've known I need to sit down and write this story so that I can tell it, and I just keep avoiding it. I wasn't sure why, even to the point when I sat down a few minutes ago and started typing this out. But I suppose there's a part of me that believes or thinks or wonders if my own health and my own trauma and my own sadness that is separate from Chris's illness and from my kids is actually important. Uh, and I guess that's a pretty telling thing. It's a mom thing, a caretaker thing. I, like so many women, am the person who carries the mental and emotional load in my family. And when things get too heavy, when I have to set things down and leave them behind because I just can't carry all of it, my stuff is the stuff that gets cut. I am, it so often seems to me, the one whose needs are expendable. Yesterday, I got in the car with my son to take him to the mall. He needed a new spring jacket and new indoor shoes for school. He was happy and chatty as he buckled his seatbelt. And then he sort of stopped and looked at me and said, Mom, I don't think we'd make it without you. I laughed and told him, I don't think so either. <laughs> and then we went to the mall. But it hit me in a pretty significant way, what he said. And it meant a lot to me that he sees that part of my life that so often goes unseen. Last year, on my third stroke anniversary, I wrote this blog on my website. Yesterday morning, I sat in the sliver of sun that streams into one corner of my living room. I wanted to read, drink my coffee, feel the warmth on my face. I wanted to take deep breaths and center myself for the day ahead. I wanted time and space to still my busy mind. So I sat down, pulled a blanket over my legs, took a sip of my coffee, opened my book, exhaled, and started to read. One paragraph later, I stopped. It felt useless. My spinning mind knew the stillness wouldn't last, and it refused to focus. It waited for the inevitable interruption, and within minutes it came. I put my coffee on the windowsill, tucked my bookmark into the same page I'd pulled it from, abandoned my blanket, my sliver of sunshine, my hope for solitude, and, in one of the million tiny ways I do each day, myself. Another day full of tasks awaited me, of helping the three people in my orbit, most of the time, I go about these jobs cheerfully, knowing I will find space for myself once the back door closes and they are all off to school and work, a walk with friends, some time reading or writing. Most of the time, my jobs as mom, wife, and caregiver don't weigh me down, but for the last week, I've had a hard time finding myself in my own life. Yesterday, I woke up and laid in the silence of my room as the sun rose outside my window, gradually spilling in between the gaps and the blinds. 
I should get up, I thought, but then I mindlessly scrolled on my phone for 40 minutes until the kids opened the door and climbed in bed with me, one lying on my belly, the other tucked in under my arm. They were happy and smiling, and outside a beautiful spring day was dawning. I got up, brushed my teeth, washed my face, looked in the mirror and thought, these two things were for you. Clean teeth, clean face. These actions, so mundane, such a basic requirement of life, felt significant enough that I noted they were things I did for me. That should have been my first clue that I was nearing a breaking point. I walked downstairs, took out the food scale and the Vitamix, and started measuring and weighing Chris's meals for the day. I pulled my notebook out of the cupboard and calculated calories as I added things to the blender. 180 calories for almonds, 180 calories for hemp hearts, 200 calories for coconut milk, 37 calories for orange juice. Each meal needs to pack 1,000 calories into the lowest volume possible to prevent reflux. Chris needs 3,000 calories each day through his feeding tube and eats another 1,000 by mouth. 4,000 calories required each day just so he doesn't lose weight. I take out the pill grinder and a bowl and crush the medicine I give him through his tube three times a day. Along with food, Chris can't swallow pills, and it once took him 10 minutes to drink 30 milliliters of liquid Motrin. I pour hot water over the powder to help it dissolve faster. Rushing this step can cause a clog, which means another problem I have to fix, another fire I have to put out, another mess I have to clean up. Mom, what's for breakfast? Mom, where's the iPad? Mom, I spilled. Kels, I need a shoe tie. Mom, what's for supper? Kels, can I get my medicine? Mom, Cohen is annoying me. Mom, can you help me reach this? Kels, can you button my cuffs? When Chris got home from work later that afternoon, I knew I had crossed this sort of invisible threshold that exists when a person spends so much time doing for other people around them that they feel like an afterthought even to themselves. By then I had typed many of these words, and though that often helps me feel better, I couldn't find the ending and the clarity that usually comes with it. I'd been short with the kids and I felt tired in my bones, so I knew I needed to do something else. I stepped outside into the bright March sunshine, but as I picked up my rake and started working, I still couldn't find a way to appreciate the day in front of me. Minutes later, Chris stood in the open doorway and asked me if he could have lunch, and I sighed. It was not a sigh that said, I'm tired or sad. It was a sigh that said, I'm annoyed. Worse yet, it was a sigh that said, I'm annoyed with you. I dropped the rake in the grass and went inside, obviously stewing and ready to take it out on whatever, the rake, or whomever, my husband, was in my path. I crushed more medicine, dissolved it in water again, and thinned his food for easier syringing. Then I sat next to him at the table, pushing his lunch directly into his belly while I cried. I was not mad at him, but there he was, an easy scapegoat. How much he needs me is not his fault. Having one hand in a feeding tube is not his fault. None of this is his fault, and none of it is mine either. That doesn't make it any less exhausting, any less painful, any less frustrating. I am not the perfect caregiver, just like I'm not the perfect mom or the perfect wife. These requests, these needs, play on an endless loop in my days, and yesterday, for whatever reason, I hit my capacity. Maybe the slow and constant accumulation caused the burnout. Maybe it was pandemic fatigue, or caretaker fatigue, or regular mom fatigue. Probably it was a combination of all of them. And maybe it was also the date on the calendar. Three years ago today, I had a stroke. I am no stranger to grief anniversaries, but this year, this marker of trauma has brought existential questions it has not before. I approach most of my emotions these days with a curiosity, a quizzical wondering. Huh, I find myself thinking after realizing some new emotion is cycling through my heart and mind. Isn't that interesting? Yesterday morning, as I stood at the counter dividing the blender full of food into three glass jars, one each for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, my mind swirled with thoughts about my stroke and my life and my weariness. I stuck my coffee in the microwave for the first time that morning, and I sought out that sliver of sun for a few minutes of my own, 
The window faces the east, and the bit of sunshine that comes in this one small corner of my house each morning is, I know, fleeting. Just like the time I'll have to enjoy it, I thought, lifting my face to the morning rays. I sat in the sunshine and thought about my stroke. I wondered why this year, its anniversary feels so heavy. Last year on this date, I felt joyful to be so alive and healthy, immeasurably grateful that the universe spared my life so I could be here to take care of Chris, so that my kids didn't have to deal with their dad's illness while grieving the loss of their mom or even the lingering effects of her stroke. I felt grateful that I am healed, that I am better, and that I was so lucky. I still feel all of those things, but this year there is another layer. One, I think, of being lost in the fray. As expected, my contemplation was interrupted within minutes. Willa wanted to play cards, Cohen wanted me to text a friend's dad to see if he could play outside, and Chris came in from the front room to say he was ready for breakfast. I got up, still considering my reaction to this grief anniversary. I thought about it as I filled syringes full of food and pushed them through Chris's feeding tube. I thought about it as I reheated my coffee for the second and third time. I thought about it as I played a game of Crazy Eights that I promised to Willa the night before at bedtime. I thought maybe writing would help, so I sat down at my computer, and then I thought about it still as I abandoned the cursor, blinking on a blank page to tie Chris's shoes. Finally, I sent the kids downstairs for screen time so I could try to pin down all of the thoughts swirling around in my unsettled mind. Now the house was silent. Chris was at work, the kids were downstairs immersed in their own distractions, and the quiet served to amplify my racing mind. The low hum of curiosity that had accompanied my morning tasks was replaced by a steady drumbeat of questions, by a clenched throat and burning eyes. If I am silent about this anniversary, I wondered, will it pass unnoticed? Has my trauma, my own reckoning with mortality, become a non-sequitur, forgettable in the midst of Chris's illness? From there my mind jumped. Have I become forgettable in the midst of Chris's illness? What are you doing for yourself, friends ask. What does self-care look like for you, my therapist wonders. Where am I in this life? How do I find myself? How do I protect myself? How do I hold on to myself? I typed those four lines, hit return, and stared at the screen, tears spilling down my cheeks and into my lap. I often don't know how to make space for myself, to find where I exist outside of ALS and taking care of my kids and Chris. On my best days, I feel honored to fill these roles. On my worst, like I did right then, in that moment, I feel suffocated by them. The life of a mother can cause these feelings. The life of a caregiver can cause them as well. What happens when you're both? How do I take care of myself when the reality of my life is that in my family, I almost always come in fourth place? How do I make sure I'm looking out for myself even as I look out for the three of them? I tried to force an answer, but it wasn't there. The only thing I felt staring at my screen was the same heaviness that had been weighing me down for days. That heaviness didn't let up when I walked out into the afternoon sun, and it still hadn't let up when Chris came home and asked for lunch, when we snapped at each other, both feeling protective and defensive of our own daily burdens. I finished giving him his food and went back outside. I was, as I told a friend later, taking out all my anger on my yard. Rage raking, I wrote to her, is definitely a thing. I think I have blisters. Sweaty and still stewing, I went inside to put on short sleeves. Chris was standing at the kitchen sink. He looked up at me. Hey, he said, I'm sorry for not giving you more grace in that moment. Do you want a hug? I nodded yes, sobbing again. He put his arms around me, and the heaviness lifted some. I wiped my eyes and went outside. I finished raking, more calmly this time, and he played catch with Cohen while Willis stood behind him calling balls and strikes. We talked to our neighbors and the kids rode their scooters. Later, Chris and the kids walked down the street to the field by our house to play baseball with friends, and as I sat on the front step reading, I heard Chris yell excitedly. I stopped reading to listen, to be sure I heard right. I didn't think Chris could yell anymore. 
He struggles to project with his voice now, so I thought maybe I was mistaken, that it was someone else. I sat there, still as could be, and it came again. Chris's voice, happy and sounding every bit like him, along with Cohen and Willa laughing. And with those sounds came the perspective that had eluded me for days. My husband is here. He can take the kids down the street and leave me to sit on the step with my book. He can play baseball. He can yell. He can hug me when I feel sad. I still don't have the answers to those questions that swirled in my mind earlier in the day. I don't always find a way to take care of myself. I get lost in the shuffle. But as I sat on the front steps, my mind finally quieted, and one thing seemed clear. Maybe the most important thing I can do, in the absence of answers, is to keep asking the questions, to keep finding the sliver of sun and lifting my face to the warmth and remembering myself. Because if I do, then that part of me, even if some days it's as small and fleeting as the morning sun through my living room window, will never go totally dark, will never slip completely away in the busyness of taking care of everyone else, will never be silenced. There will be witness in the asking, the wondering, in knowing that those questions matter, that I matter, that while I am intensely proud to be Chris's wife and Cohen and Willa's mom, that I am honored to be a caregiver and an advocate, that I am not just those things, that I can take up space in this life too. I may not always know what that space looks like, but yesterday it looked like grieving a stroke at 34 years old and reflecting on how, when it happened, I naively thought, this could be the scariest thing that ever happens to us. It looked like acknowledging the fragility of life and feeling angry at how early and often I've had to learn that lesson. It was remembering how scary it was to not be able to stand up for a week, to know I had to leave the hospital with one of the arteries that winds its way through my spine and into my brain, still torn, to use a walker for two months and to live with the fact that my neurologist doesn't know if my previous stroke makes me more susceptible to another one in the future. It was recognizing the fear of something like that happening to me again, now that my husband has a terminal illness, and the exhaustion from the constant hum of worry I've had for the last year about getting COVID and dying and leaving my babies here with a dad who is sick and no mom. It was acknowledging the pressure I feel to stay healthy, the anxiety that surrounds any twitch or pain in my body, the tears that flowed when I tweaked my back two weeks ago as I crumpled to the floor and said one thing over and over again in my mind. I cannot afford to be hurt. And last, and hardest for me to vocalize, it looked like admitting the personal cost of this new life of mine, the way Chris's illness has rewritten how I think about the future, my own personal goals, my plans, my hopes. It was acknowledging the things I've already had to give up, to let go of, to grieve, because now I have two life goals that trump all others, keeping Chris alive as long as I can and guiding my children through this massively unfair hand they've been dealt. As I unwound all of this in my head, Chris came home. He was thrilled to be outside playing baseball again, I could tell, but felt dehydrated and needed some water. This time I got up happily to help him. We stood on the deck as I pushed water through his tube and I thought about our winter, about the fear and sadness as his swallowing deteriorated, the worry that his voice would keep getting worse, the adjustment to his feeding tube. It had been a hard many months, but there we were, standing on the deck in the warm sunshine. We made it through another winter, lived as a family of four to see another change of seasons, to tune all four bikes for more family rides, to be playing catch and raking the yard, to have even the luxury of small squabbles healed by strong hugs. Chris headed back to the field for more baseball, and as I listened to the three of them yelling and laughing, the heaviness of the last days evaporated completely. I took a deep breath of warm spring air and again tipped my face to the sun. There will be more winters, both literal and metaphorical, I thought. But if we hold on, if we keep pressing, we will come out on the other side. In the years since I wrote that, I have continued to struggle with finding myself in this life of mine. 
Moms so often carry everything, everyone. And so while this is a story about how a fit, healthy young woman had a stroke at 34 years old, it's also about a lot more than a stroke. This is about what happens when the person who carries everything can't stand up. This is my story. A quick reminder that Sorry I'm Sad is truly a labor of love for me. From finding guests and researching topics to preparing for interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself, a great deal of time, energy, and thought go into each ad-free episode. If you value this podcast and want to support it, please go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow, that's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W, to become a member. Your contribution will help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and give you access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. Good morning. Good morning. It's been a long time. I know. I don't think we've ever done this in the morning. No. Only ever do it after the kids go to bed. So today we're going to talk about my stroke. That feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, it does. So last month was the four-year anniversary of my stroke. And every year I kind of post something about it or you post something about it this year. And generally the comments are... You had a stroke, mm-hmm. <laughs> which seems pretty unlikely. I was 34 uh, when I had my stroke, and it wasn't really a typical stroke. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of people ask me is, well, how did that happen to you? And so I think it's kind of a good like public service announcement to to talk about it. As I've been getting ready for this episode, I've been thinking kind of about the the idea of what sort of my how my own trauma counts in in the grand scheme of things. Uh, for us here. And I was, I mentioned, I think in the, in the intro that, um, that there was an episode you and I did together, Chris, where we, I was list, I listed sort of all these like horrible things that have happened to us. And I completely forgot to even include my stroke. <laughs> Goodness. Um, because it does sort of feel like something that on the list of stuff has gotten continually pushed down um, over the years. Because you're constantly fourth. Yes. And then suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. Unfairly. Yeah, but that's a lot of moms, right? But that is part of the the dynamic um when somebody who is the who carries the sort of load mentally and emotionally and sometimes literally uh can't do it. What that means and what and how I internalize that. And we'll get to all of that. But first I wanted to just kind of start with talking about how it happened. So how old were the kids? Willow was three. Willow was three and Cone was six. Yeah, and you were, so the week before my stroke, you were away. Yes, I was in California watching our AHLT. And I remember that both kids were in bed with me because that's what happened then. (laughs) And I woke up one morning and I felt like I must have slept funny. My neck hurt. And when I was driving, like it hurt to sort of, it just felt stiff, right? Like I had slept funny. Um, But I was going a lot to Orange Theory then. Um, and I really, really loved it. And I was in the best shape of my life and I wanted to sort of get back to the gym, but my neck was really bothering, you know, my neck was stiff. So I wanted to sort of loosen it up. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go to the chiropractor, which I had been going to a chiropractor for a lot of years since I had kids and moms can relate to the fact that like you put a kid on your hip for however many hours and your hips get out of alignment. And then that affects your, 
your back and your legs and and everything. And I had found a chiropractor to be a pretty a pretty quick and easy fix for those problems. And I think you were always a little bit more wary of me going to the chiropractor than I was. For sure. Yeah. And especially in this case. Right. And um, sort of the the words that will always come back to haunt me were when you said, I said, I'm going to go to the chiropractor. And you said, don't let them touch your neck. Mm. I recall you calling and expressing this real discomfort, this pain that you could not tolerate in your neck and saying you wanted to go. Yeah. And I just thought, no. Yeah. So uh, I did go. Because <laughs> um, I do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. <laughs> 15 years. <laughs> I went to the chiropractor and um, the chiropractor did a manual, they'd call it a manual cervical manipulation. So he cracked my neck. What they don't call it is a high velocity crack yeah. of your neck. <clears throat> so he cracked my neck. And I didn't really feel much of anything at that point. Um, it didn't feel really any different than it did before. And a few days later, you were home. And I decided I was going to try to go to the gym. Because uh, I kind of thought, well, whatever, I'm going to have to kind of just deal with this. And so it was a partner workout that day at the gym. And I was working out with my friend Cheryl, who is very fit. And I'm highly competitive, which is why I loved Orange Theory. Um because you can compete with everybody on the board. You can kind of compete with yourself. Cheryl is very, very fit. And so I was trying really hard to push myself to push her kind of a thing. And it was this workout where you had to you trade it off on the treadmill and I think the weights in the rowing machine. And you had to run at whatever speed that your partner was running at before you. And I think I ended up running at like 11 miles an hour. That's fast. I don't think it was for an extended period of time. But I remember that at some point toward the end of it, I was kind of walking over to the weight bench and I just felt not dizzy like you feel when you just sort of get up too fast, but like very unstable type of dizzy. Like my sort of foundation was off and the workout was almost over and I kind of just, finished it out the best I could and then got in the car and I called you and I said, I'm really frustrated. Like my neck hurts again and I feel dizzy. And you said, go home and call Ramona. That's my doctor. And so I, I, I was fine at that point still to, to drive. And the gym is like a six minute drive from our house. And so I drove home and I called Ramona. I left her a message saying, I don't really know at that point what I thought my neck needed, but just saying, I need something here and I'm frustrated and I'm feeling a little dizzy. And, and then once I got home and I got inside things like really, the wheels really started to come off. I thought I need to lie down cause I'm feeling really dizzy and I made it to the couch and Willa was in preschool then. And she needed to be picked up pretty shortly after I was done at the gym. And I remember I called you. Do you remember me calling you the first time? Mm-hmm. And from what I remember, I just told you I couldn't pick Willa up. Mm -hmm. And you might remember like the ensuing, I don't know, 40 minutes after that better than I do. Well, I recall the second phone call and it wasn't yet time to get hurt, but I was concerned enough about you that I was coming directly home. 
Right. And I got in the car, and work is a, at that time of day, it's a 12-minute drive. Mm-hmm. I got in the car, and I was driving, just starting, and called, and he didn't answer. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was, I think, as scared as I've ever been. Mm-hmm. And I got home as quick as I could. And when I came in the front door, the main-level bathroom is right by the door. Mm-hmm. And you were legs and arms around the toilet, mm-hmm. kind of clutching it. And when I talked to you, I would say that you were as close to non-responsive as you can be while still being responsive. So what I remember during that time for me is that I called you and I got to the couch and said, I'm too dizzy to drive. I can't go pick Will up. I need you to go pick Will up. And I, I think you told me you were going to come home. And then I hung up the phone and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be sick. And at that point, I was so dizzy that I couldn't see anything when I stood up and everything was just spinning. And I used the island, the counter and the walls to like get to the toilet. And, and then once I got to the toilet, I had that where you found me like clutching it is because mm-hmm. I could not. Like I would, I, if I wasn't holding on to it, I was just going to fall over. Like I was so dizzy and I was just throwing up and throwing up and throwing up. So then you got home. I think I did manage to answer because you kept calling me. I had my Apple watch on and I didn't have my phone. I feel like I answered on my Apple watch or tried to or something because I knew you were going to be worried and I was with it enough to know that. Or maybe I just remember that you were calling and I could see that you were calling, but I was puking or something. I don't, do you remember if I answered ever? You did not. I did not answer. I must have thought I should. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so then you got home and it was it at that point that you uh, called the ambulance? It was very clear right away that you had something seriously wrong. Yeah. And so, yes, I called 911 right away. So full disclosure, uh, I think we both have a pretty healthy amount of respect and gratitude for the Canadian healthcare system and for Alberta Health. Um, but I didn't have a great experience. <laughs> to say the least. With, with it, with my stroke. So you called the ambulance and an ambulance came with two, two EMTs and then the fire department, a fire truck came too, obviously, because they, I think, always come together. Now it was getting close to Willa needing to go. I remember or you needing to go get Willa from preschool, which in hindsight was ridiculous that, I mean, we hadn't knew enough people at that point, like we could have called somebody <laughs> and told them, but you're just not in those moments thinking about anything really rationally. And so they walked in and I don't know what you remember about their interactions with me. There was the one, the one EMT who really drove, I don't, I'm, there was another EMT, but I don't remember seeing that one until I got into the ambulance. So the EMT who I remember dealing with um, came in and do you remember your impressions of that? I just recall thinking, okay, there's an expert here and kind of standing to the side. Yeah. I remember him just being pretty like cold with me, not mm-hmm. being very like warm or compassionate for kind of what was happening to me, which at that point was like, I was having a hard time. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't stop puking. I was just throwing up and throwing up and throwing up. And I think he had walked in with his mind made up. Yeah. The weird, which is to say that he just thought that you were dehydrated. 
yeah, maybe I, and a lot of people in Calgary get migraines from like the weather changing and migraines are a really common thing um, from the pressure changes. And so maybe he just thought I was like, after sort of going through it in my mind, I kind of think he thought I was just like a dehydrated housewife who had a migraine and called the ambulance Mm -hmm. and was probably making too big of a deal of my symptoms. And there's a bigger issue here with, um, well, my age, but women not being believed a lot Mm -hmm. of in the same way when they talk about their pain or they talk about being sick. Um, and that's, that's a bigger overarching issue. But, uh, I remember that the firefighters asked the EMT if they should get a stretcher to take me to the ambulance. And I remember him saying no. And that was, I think the first time where I thought I must not be as sick as I think I am. And so the firefighters had to like drag me. They each lifted me up under my, like one on each armpit and literally dragged me to the ambulance. Like I remember my feet dragging cause I couldn't walk. And then we got to the ambulance. And now at this point you needed to go get Willa. And so you weren't there anymore. You were just going to meet us at the ER at Foothills, which is Foothills hospital is literally like three, four minute drive from our house. And then we got to the, to the ambulance. And I remember the firefighters asking now if they should put me on the stretcher in the ambulance. And he told them to put me in the jump seat. And I was falling out of the jump seat because I couldn't sit up. And, um, he told me to like put the seatbelt on me. And that was like the only thing holding me upright was the seatbelt. Um, and I had a, a bag, like an emesis bag and I was just throwing up and throwing up. And at that point I said, I can't open my right eye. And that was the first time for me that I thought, okay, this is like, I couldn't open my right eye. And I kept saying to him, I can't open my right eye. I can't open my right eye. And he was just sitting there like writing stuff down and not even really responding to me. Um, and I kept saying it to him over and over and over. And it's like, he wouldn't even listen to me. And I don't know. I think at some point he told me I was going to be like, you're going to be fine. But it wasn't even like, uh, you know, like you're going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. It was like, you're fine. You're going to be fine. And there, there was a woman that was his partner. And I don't think she ever said a single word to me. Um, and we drove to, Foothills and I remember stopping at all the stoplights and everything. So I know the lights weren't on or anything because every time we stopped, every time there was any change in speed or motion, I threw up again. Um, and then they did put me in a wheelchair <laughs> once we got to the hospital, thankfully, cause I couldn't walk. And, um, and I think then the next biggest mistake in my care came from him being the one who spoke to the triage nurse. Now I have since like requested all of my medical records during this time from during this time, um, which you actually have to pay for to get like your full medical records. You have to pay and it's kind of complicated to actually do it, but there's no real documentation of what was said to the triage nurse, obviously. Um, but whatever was said to the triage nurse made it appear to them that my situation was not a very big deal. And I sat in the ER, slumped over in a wheelchair, not able to open my eyes and continually throwing up for two hours. So clearly they did not think that anything significant was happening to me. The the people who triaged me and the, the EMT who talked to them, because you didn't get there until after I had been triaged, right? You were still in the waiting room. And what did you, like, did you talk to anybody? Did you 
try to... No, at that point, you were not getting sick. You know, that, that trust that they're handling you properly. What was going on then with the kids? Well, the, Willow was with me, and I think they called with a friend. When did Willow leave? Did she end up going with... She got picked up. By a friend at some point. So I got back into the into the triage, and when I needed to sit up, someone had to like hold me up. You finally saw a doctor. Yes. And the doctor went to examine you. Mm-hmm. And his first thing was to sit you up, really just just for purposes of starting this. Mm-hmm. And when he looked over your shoulders, you just fell to the left. Mm-hmm. And he did it again, and you fell again. And it was that quickly that he said, I think you had a stroke. Yeah, I remember that they he did the eye thing. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I remember him saying that that he thought I had a stroke. And then I remember that they asked me two initial questions. The first question was whether I was on birth control, because as we all know, birth control can increase your risk of blood clots. And I was not on birth control. And the second question they asked was, have you been to a chiropractor recently? And I said, yeah, I was there three days ago. And they said, oh, did what did they do? And I said, oh, I had a neck adjustment. Um, and so, you know, they're going to be careful about how they say things, but they mentioned they've seen multiple situations like this where someone comes in with a stroke after having been to a chiropractor in recent days. So their working theory was that I had torn um, an artery because of the neck adjustment and that that artery then had, um, you know, that tear had formed a clot and that maybe that maybe when I was at the gym that the sort of exert level of exertion through that clot and then that was what caused the stroke. So I went right away for, um, I think it was like a dye MRI. I remember the, the nurse telling me like four times, you're going to feel like you peed your pants, but you didn't. Because huh. <laughs> of the dye, I guess, that they put in, the way like it warms the warmth of it or something through your body. She told me so many times, you're, you, you're going to feel like you peed your pants, but you didn't pee, just, you didn't pee your pants. <laughs> and at that point, I had no, I wouldn't have doubted if I had because I was so physically out of it. But that dye MRI showed that I indeed had a, what was it like a, how big was the tear? Do you remember? Three centimeters? That sounds right. A three centimeter tear in my right vertebral artery. So one of the arteries that winds its way through your spine um, and neck bones up into your brain um, was torn and that that was what had caused this stroke. So I had a really good experience in the ER. Uh, The doctors there were great and the nurses there were great. The leading up to it was horrible. And then the after wasn't awesome because I got moved out of the ER, but not yet to the stroke unit. And at that point I could, if I moved at all, like if I tried to roll over, if I tried to lift my head, I was still throwing up, but I could, it was not like constant. And um, you brought Cohen and Willa then. I remember. And I wondered what it was like to tell them, like, what did you tell them had happened to me? I don't recall exactly what I told them. I just saw that they were so young mm-hmm. that as long as they were reassured mm-hmm. that you're not in immediate danger, they would accept that. Yeah. I remember them sort of being standoffish with me in the hospital. And I was thinking about how I think I was in grade four when my dad had 
what we thought was a heart attack. And I remember when I saw him and I've always had this, and I still have this strong belief that my dad is invincible. And I had it even more so as a child than I do now. And I remember feeling so shaken by seeing him sick and then seeing him with like the hospital gown on and all the cords and the IVs and all of that stuff and being scared of him and being ashamed that I felt scared of him. And I remember thinking that that's how the kids were viewing me at that same point. I remember saying to you the whole time, anytime you brought them, like just, you can take them. They don't need to stay. Cause I felt, I knew how they were feeling. Cause I had felt that way when I saw my dad in the hospital and I didn't want to make them feel guilty for it. Cause I definitely did. And I've talked, tried to talk to them about it, but so then you guys left and I was still in like my gym clothes from that day. And I hadn't gone to the bathroom all day because I couldn't go by myself. I couldn't stand up. And and I had, to go to, I had to go to the bathroom so bad. And they said, oh, we're going to move you up to the stroke unit. And then somebody will take you to the bathroom. And I bet it was two hours at least <laughs> before I finally got moved. And I think it was in a hallway for a while. When I got to the stroke unit, the nurse was like, where have you been? We lost you. Oh, it's like, uh, I have to pee so bad. Because <laughs> then I had been hooked up to IVs and stuff. So I obviously hadn't been drinking anything. But yeah, so then I was in the stroke unit for six days. I think it was on the second day that I had a repeat MRI, maybe like toward the end of the second day. Mm-hmm. Because I think that originally they thought they'd let I would get out on day three. Uh, but the MRI showed I still had brain swelling. So I ended up staying for six days in a room uh, that I shared with, I don't know, maybe four other, three, three others, three other patients. Two of them were mostly the same person. And then one bed was just like cycling people all the time. And it was, (laughs) I don't think that any hospital experience is a good experience, but a shared room hospital experience when you have brain trauma everyone had their own television <laughs> so this person over here was watching fox news at volume 74 and this person over here was watching you know, cops at volume 85 and this person over here was like yelling at her kids on her phone and i just was in a fetal position my head hurt so bad and the medicine they were giving me just wasn't even touching it I couldn't focus on anything. Like, and, and the smell was really unpleasant. Yeah. There was a woman, one of the patients who had like no, no control over her bathroom abilities. And so there was a lot of accidents and I was already nauseous and so just kind of always smelled in there. And then one night in the middle of the night, they brought in a patient who didn't speak any English. And I don't know why the like consistent response to people who don't speak English is to just like then yell at them in English. <laughs> That's so true. But they like turned on all the fluorescent lights and they're like yelling at this lady in English and she clearly doesn't speak any English. Yeah, that was a rough one. And I I remember just like I had constantly an ice pack on my forehead on the back of my head and I just watched this clock that was like right kind of in my eye line above my bed. I would count down till I could take more medicine because it maybe took the edge off my headache for like an hour. And then I remember one night finally I was... A nurse came to check on me, one of those like three in the morning check-ins. And I was just like laying in the bed in a fetal position with the ice packs and like just crying because my head hurts so bad. And she said, oh, what's going on? And I, said, I can't, my head hurts so bad and they nobody will give me any different medicine. And and she's like, oh, I'm going to get this figured out for you. And and then she got, got some orders for some different medicine that helped more, but it was not a great experience um, at all. <laughs> 
in the hospital. Uh, the the enduring memory that I have it was day know, was day two or day three. You going for a walk, mm-hmm. and I think it's the top floor of the hospital, and there are windows all the way down the hallway. Mm-hmm. And it's a long hallway, and they took you with a walker, on uh, and. I was behind you, and just watching the way you walked, you looked like you were 80 years old. Yeah. So my stroke was different in the sense that, like, when sometimes people, a lot of times when you think of people having a stroke and they have to, they can't walk or they can't talk or whatever, it's like they have to relearn those things. My issue wasn't that I didn't know how to walk. My issue was that my stroke was in my cerebellum and it affected my balance so much that I couldn't stand up. Like, I just tip over. And so it was a it was a balance issue with you know explains why when he sat me up in the ER I just kept tipping and tipping um, for a while I couldn't only sleep on one side in the bed because I kept feeling like I was gonna just like roll roll out of bed because that just feeling of of my my vertigo was so bad so yeah I remember that walk and then I remember I think later on the maybe the day that I was supposed to get out the physical therapist had me try to do some stairs. <laughs> And I just couldn't believe that it was that hard for me to walk up the steps. It was it was crazy. But my mom came. What when did my mom come? She came pretty quickly. I would say within a day or two. Yeah, and she just sat in the hospital with me. Actually, not true. She got there. She said hello. She gave you a kiss. She sat for ten minutes and went and watched Colin play hockey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Probably because I was like, just like, there's literally sent us, yeah. nothing for you to do here. But she did sit by your side for the better part of, I'd say, four to five days. Yeah, yeah, she did. And then she, how long was she here in total, do you think? It's either two or three weeks. Three weeks, really? I think so. So I got out of the hospital or after six days and my sort of discharge instructions were I couldn't drive for a month, which felt like... I didn't think I would be able to drive after a month. Anyway, I felt so um, out of control of my body. And I had a, a cane that they gave to me. And I went and I got you a really, really sporty walker. Oh, yeah. The best. The, only the best. <laughs> it was slick. It was a nice walker. I vividly remember as I was starting to get a little bit better, but I still needed the walker. I was in Costco and this little boy in a cart with his mom was like, oh, mommy, look at that lady's wheelchair. And the mom said, oh, honey, that's not a wheelchair. That's a walker. You know, like great grandma has. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, that sounds about right. (laughs) But before that, you sat in the corner of the couch for most of your day for nearly six weeks. Yeah. And I, I think that something I didn't understand about having a brain injury is how tired it makes you. (laughs) Um, I think that I could shower by myself when I got home. In the hospital, I showered. I remember showering twice. And my mom had to do it for me. And I, I sat in like one of those like wheelchair, you know, shower commode sure. things. And she had to shower me. Toward the end of my hospital stay, I could go to the bathroom by myself with my walker. And I could manage getting up and down that much. Uh, but she had to shower me. And I'm pretty sure when I got home, I could shower, but I remember that she she dried my hair and combed my hair for me and stuff because I couldn't, I didn't have that much in me. And I remember just always thinking like, I should, this is not that big of a deal. Like I should be better by now than I am. And I should just, I should just be able to do it. I remember once um, Cassie Campbell Pascal came over with a bunch of food and to play with the kids after school one day. 
And I remember thinking, oh, I'll sit up and talk to her. And this is ridiculous that people have to do this for me. Like I should be able to do this by now. And I remember that I I sat on the couch and talked to her for a bit while she when she got here. And that eventually I sort of retreated upstairs to the bedroom and I felt so sick that I called Ramona, my doctor, and told her I thought I was having another stroke. I was so scared because I was having sort of some of the same symptoms. And she's like, well, you just did too much kind of a thing. But the hard part was when I got out of the hospital, they they had no, they couldn't tell me like whether this was likely to happen again. I still had the tear. Those take a really long time to heal. And so I was really scared all the time that, you know, and of course then by then I'd read about vertebral artery tears and yeah, they can happen in a really high impact, uh, sort of high velocity movement of your neck, like a car accident or a chiropractic visit, they can also happen from like blowing your nose too hard. Mm -hmm. And so I was just scared to do anything. Then I felt sort of ashamed that I was so scared. Um, it was a very strange feeling. And then I remember not long after I got home, Cohen had a hockey tournament in Canmore and you were going to take him. And my mom was here. So we thought, okay, like I'll stay and mom can help with Willa. And Willa was three and Willa had a really hard time with my stroke, like re a really, really hard time. And she was so mean to my mom <laughs> because she didn't want anything to do with her. Mm -hmm. I actually remember having this conversation with Melanie Masterson, who, who passed away in December about her mom helping her when she was, I don't know if she, when she was newly diagnosed with cancer or just during her cancer um, treatments and her littlest having the same reaction to her mom, uh, just didn't want her there. And Willa had never been away from me for a single night. I don't think it that maybe, maybe a couple. I doubt it. No, no. Cause well, I had just been to Mexico like by myself. Yeah. So, so she was just me. Yeah. But I dropped her off at preschool one day and then I didn't come back for six days. And when I came back, I couldn't hold her and I couldn't do any of the things that she wanted me to do. And, and she had such a hard time. She started just like throwing up her, she'd eat and then she'd throw up and it was like, she never even digested the food and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And basically um, we ended up going for x-rays for her and she was like so stressed out that her digestive system wasn't working the right way. And she wasn't going to the bathroom and she was so constipated. Sorry, Willa, if you ever listen to this when you're an adult, um, so constipated that she, she had no room for food in her belly and she just kept puking. And so when you went to Canmore, she threw up like three times that day and then she wouldn't sleep with my mom. And so I needed help going to the bathroom still, uh, at night. Cause I was like running into the walls and stuff and she was, but she had to sleep with me and it was, it was a train wreck. We were a disaster, <laughs> but you and Cohen had fun. <laughs> Cohen had a great time. I'm sitting here thinking Cohen expressed no concerns yeah. at this time. Uh, we stayed at a wood paneled hotel mm -hmm. in a mountain town. He had games. He went on the water slide. He had, he had the time of his life. Yeah, he won the Heart and Hustle in the last game. He came home very, very happy with himself. And I asked him the other night when I was putting him to bed if he remembered. I wondered if he remembered what you told him about my stroke when I first had it. And he said he didn't remember, which makes sense. He was six. And, you know, again, you probably downplayed it. Yeah, just two guys talking. <laughs> Yeah. One important thing, so Jean's barely talking. Right, exactly. <laughs> so eventually my mom left, and then I remember I still couldn't drive when she left, and so I had to coordinate like rides to and from school for the kids. 
Um, I'm not sure why I did that instead of you, but I did. <laughs> I thought I drove them. Uh, it must have been sometimes when you couldn't. I remember having them having to arrange rides for them. I mean, standing was still a challenge. I certainly didn't trust myself like a knife or anything, so I didn't trust myself to cook. And one of my friends, Lindsay, set up a meal train for us. And that I found pretty amazing because Cohen was in his second year of Timbits that year, Timbits hockey. And he, and and I don't know, we didn't really, like we knew the families, but we weren't friends with any of them. And the people who filled that meal train were all hockey people. Mm-hmm. They were all people from his hockey team. I still recall his coach, Craig, yeah. making ribs that were incredible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because one thing we learned is with the food train, you get a lot of lasagnas. So many lasagnas. And there was a difficult balance out there of gratitude. And, oh, my God, oh, no. if there's another lasagna, we're not going to be able to even look at it. I know. I think it was like years before we actually made or purchased our own lasagna. I know. That's we got true. eight. We got so many lasagnas. And the eighth was this really extra generous effort, which was on my office. Set us with a saddle dome. Like serving tray that could feed like 40 people. And this was the eighth and final lasagna. Yeah. And we invited the entire neighborhood over and <laughs> literally sent, sent it off. Yeah. It was, yeah. Whenever somebody starts a meal train for somebody now, I always chirp in and like, just speaking from my experience, if you do the meal train, make sure people are putting in the food they're bringing. <laughs> and now I will never give another person a lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I gave lasagna. It's like the thing to make. To people before. Because it creates great leftovers. Yeah, it's easy to heat, reheat. You well, can, the blessing and the curse. You can freeze it easy mm-hmm. by just putting the whole pan in the freezer. Anyway. Well, we were so well fed and yeah. it was so helpful and so kind. It was really helpful and really kind. Um, I remember toward the end of, well, I'm just like toward the end of my recovery or toward the end of the time when I, I think, I think in my head I've told my, I told myself I should be recovered. I wonder how, how long that was after that we went to the flames that end of the year. That was late April, and your stroke was March 15th. So six weeks about. And I remember that I, I, I oh, I'll be fine, and I wondered if I should even bring my cane, and then I, did I bring it? I brought it in right away. I said, for sure, it's a contract here. Bring it. <laughs> but you realized soon after getting in that you needed it. Yeah, and I remember I thought I'd be okay because we'd get in and I'd be able to sit down, but it wasn't really like a formal dinner. It was kind of just a like, lot of standing around. And there was a period at one point and we were talking to somebody and I looked at you and I was like, I, I need a chair. <laughs> like I got to sit down now or I'm going to fall down kind of a thing. And there were those reminders for me that, that I wasn't as good as I thought I should be by, I don't know. I don't know why. I, like I just, maybe I thought because they told me I couldn't drive for a month that after a month I should be okay. So during this time, I have a question. Yeah. The doctors were, for me, reassuring at the hospital, in that they gave me the confidence that you would recover fully. Uh-huh. What was your feeling about that? How much were you concerned that you would not? Uh, I don't think I was concerned that I wouldn't recover fully, and I think that because they did seem confident that I would, that when I didn't feel better as quickly as I kind of thought I should, which again, I don't know, like, I think I just had that month in my head because that was when they said I could drive again, that if I'm good, if I'm, I should be well enough to drive, I should be well enough, be well enough to do basically anything at that point. So I don't know if it made me feel sort of like some amount of pressure that I, I should be better than I, 
okay, this wasn't really that big of a deal. I think I have spent so much of like my life, like discounting my own self that, um, that I just kept telling myself it probably wasn't that bad. And I was probably just being lazy or not trying hard enough. Um, yeah, I felt, I guess I felt guilty a lot about how sick I was, which is kind of weird. Well, I'm sorry to hear you say that because that on top of what you felt physically, you shouldn't have had to deal with. And the fact that that exists within you shouldn't, yeah. shouldn't be there. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I guess, it, you know, after probably about a month, I did start driving again. And they had told me at the hospital that I had, I would hear from like a outpatient sort of physical therapy and occupational therapy, like a place that does this for stroke patients and neurological injury patients, brain injury patients that I would hear from them within like six weeks. And you didn't. I didn't. And I think that around six weeks, I had started to feel like well enough that I didn't think that I needed it. So I recall that this happened on a, a snowy day in March. Yeah. And May 1st was exactly six weeks. And on May 1st, the weather turned. Mm-hmm. And your health turned. Yeah. It was like there was this period in which both you and the weather were in the deep, dark period. <laughs> and all of a sudden, everything was different. Yeah. Yeah. Not to say you're totally yourself, but you're functional and you're physically capable of so much more. Yeah. I felt so, um, you know, with everything Willow was going through during that time, I felt just so like incapable of so many things, like being the mom I she needed me to be and being the person at home that I was used to being. Um, it was just a very, it was hard. It was hard. And brain injuries are hard to heal from. And, you know, I don't think I had an insignificant one, you know, in the hospital, they, they sort of rated my stroke as moderate. And yeah, I I guess, you know, it took time and I had a hard time giving myself that time. After what, three months, I think I went back for a, like a repeat MRI, Mm -hmm. you know, they called me after a couple weeks after I had it. And I went in and saw the neurologist who had been my neurologist in the hospital. And he said that the artery was healed and that the MRI showed like the blood flow was the same on both sides. It didn't look like there was any scar tissue. And then I said, well, you know, how likely is it, like, am I more likely to have something like this happening in the future? And he said, we don't really know. <laughs> and then I said, well, are there things I should avoid? And he's like, I would just avoid really strenuous weightlifting. I'm like, well, I don't even know. What is that? <laughs> you know? So that was like, that's a little unsettling for me. And I still get a little nervous whenever I have sort of a headache that I can associate with that side of my body and and things like that. But otherwise, for me, the lingering effects are just that I am a dizzier person. Um, I have a hard time like looking up quickly and then looking back down. Like if Cohen throws me a, a pop fly when we're playing catch, I can't, that's hard for me to look up, look down like that. It's hard for me to turn my head back. Is that why that fly ball two years ago hit you in the chest from like 150 feet? <laughs> no, that was because it lost it in the sun. <laughs> And it hit me right in the chest, and I thought I was having a heart attack. But that was a different story. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I have a hard time with that. Um, I find if it's very hot, 
I get sicker faster. And motion, especially if it's warm out, is an issue. Yeah. For a long time, I ran into door jams. <laughs> and you run your car into two objects that are not moving. Uh, a curb. A curb and, and car. another car. <laughs> that was, I, I, and that, those are depth, perce- I have, I have depth perception problems mm-hmm. um, still. Minor, minor accidents. Yes. I think my depth perception has, has gotten better. That one, the things you're talking about were very soon after mm-hmm. I started driving again, but my depth perception is definitely not as good as it used to be. Yeah. And sometimes I just feel off, but I don't know what that's Sometimes like. you forget something and you say stroke brain. And I say, that is not the part of your brain that the struggle affected. You don't know. <laughs> you use it. <laughs> yes, I should be able to use it for something. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I don't, otherwise there's not a lot that lingers from my stroke, which is probably why it can be easy to forget that it happened. You, you were more angry at the chiropractor than I was. For sure. Um, I actually ran into the chiropractor in June So just like two months after my stroke at like a community event and he had no idea. He was like, oh, how are you doing? And I said, well, I had a stroke and his face just dropped and he said, when? And I said, oh, three days after I saw you last. And he's like, oh, what was like, what do they think? And I told him that they thought it was probably from my neck adjustment. And I told him that it was a, a a tear in my vertebral artery. And he kind of just said, that he was glad that I recall, like, I knew he wanted to get out of that conversation as fast as he possibly could. And I don't, I didn't hold any ill will against him. I did request my chiropractic records after that from, from the office. And he had noted uh, in my records that he had spoken to me and kind of, I had told him that it had happened when I was at the gym and they could tell he kind of wrote it like it was, and I in no way believe that orange theory caused my stroke. I went back to orange theory after uh, I, was recovered enough um, and went there until COVID started. So I in no way think that the gym caused my stroke. No, I was angry because I think that there's responsibility yeah. on the part of the chiropractor to verbally articulate the fact that there's a risk of X, Y, and Z, one of those things being stroke mm-hmm. with a manipulation of your neck. Do you want me to proceed? Yes or no? Right. And he did not do that. And so I've talked to some people, like doctors, neurologists, since then in a conversation about like the idea of informed consent versus implied consent. Implied consent being when I started going to that chiropractor uh, three years before, I I signed a document saying that I released them from responsibility if something happened to me. Um, And a lot of doctors don't believe that that's good enough, that that chiropractor should have told me like Chris is saying, right before he did the adjustment, okay, I'm going to do this neck adjustment on you. It does increase, it does come with an increased chance of this happening. Uh, Would you like me to proceed? Which would be informed consent. And I do think that if you ask a person that in that moment, that's a different sort of, um, there's a different weight to that. And had he said that, what would you have said? I don't think I would have done it. Really? Yeah, I mean, I think that... I'm glad to hear that. I just think you're in such pain. I wasn't in... No, I was uncomfortable. I was... Like, it was uncomfortable. Uh, it wasn't... If he had said, this specific adjustment is known to increase the chance of 
you know, a artery tear and stroke, subsequent stroke. Like that's a scary thing to hear. Um, I like to think that I would have said no. I hope I would have said no. That's what I would say now. <laughs> you just felt, when I was talking to you the days prior that there was desperation for relief. And one of the challenges of neck injuries, that neck, I guess, discomfort, and this is how people go to chiropractors, is what's the alternative? You're not having surgery. Yeah. So what, what do you do? Right. And what you should do is you should go to physio and you should go to get a massage and you should do things that take up more time. And so I think for a lot of people, when they know that that a chiropractor is just a quick a quick in Instant and out, fix, yeah. yeah, that they're more likely to do that. And to, you know, to my chiropractor did help me in a lot of ways with my hip pain and my back pain associated with childbirth and being a mom. Um, there was a lot of good there. I was more upset with the EMT. I felt really, really mistreated by the, that EMT. And I felt that if there was something there for me, and as far as like retribution, that's where it would come from. And I did request all my medical records from everybody. And we did end up having a conversation with a lawyer about specifically the chiropractor and I mean, basically the consensus was that like chiro- like the chiropractic associations spend a huge amount of money making sure that these lawsuits cannot be won. And so it, for me, I just wanted to move on. It wasn't, it didn't feel worth it to me. It never really did for me. It was, that was more of a, that was more of something driven by you. It was for me, it wasn't just about you. So this is happening to lots of people. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing to say is that when this happened to me, the number of stories, and I posted about it, and I posted about it reluctantly because I looked pretty ashamed that I let somebody do this to my neck and I wasn't smarter about it. Um, and I still, when I post about it, I get comments underneath like, oh, what an idiot for some letting somebody touch your neck. And you're not the first person, you're not the last. You're one of right. tons. But then I heard all these stories from people who were, you know, a one degree of separation from me who had a similar thing. In fact, a woman that I worked with in Minnesota, who we're friends on social media, she messaged me, I don't know, maybe two months after my stroke and said that she had read all my posts on social media, had known what happened to me. Um, Still, she'd gone to a chiropractor and she'd had a neck adjustment. And I I missed a very early sign. Um, There was a period after my chiropractic adjustment and before my stroke where I had some vision issues some sort of uh, blurry double vision and some like black spots in my vision, which I know now is a sign of a tear. And so I had written all these things and on my social media and this woman messaged me and she said, I went to the chiropractor and like the next day I started to have vision issues and I remembered what you wrote and I went to the ER and sure enough, she had a, a tear in her vertebral artery. So I don't think it's that uncommon. And then once I went back to the gym, there was a girl at at the gym I went to who always wore a toque when she was running. And I, I just thought it was strange and I wanted to know why she did it. And so after class one day I said, why do you wear a toque when you run? And she was, she was a neurology fellow at Foothills and she was talking about all this science about, I don't really remember that part of it. Like why she wore the toque, letting heat escape from your head is actually not good or something, something. And then I said, oh, you might, maybe, you know, my neurologist. And I told her his name and she was asking why I had a neurologist at, you know, my age and I told her I had a stroke, and she said they were actually at that point encouraging um, a change in the way that people were triaged 
to have a question mm. um, about having been to a chiropractor recently mm. because they were seeing so many uh, of these things come in. Mm. So, no, I don't think it's uncommon. And hopefully, Eurasia died of this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm very lucky, you know, I'm very lucky that that I have recovered the way I have, which I think is another reason why I sort of downplay that this happened to me or that it was a big deal or or whatever, because I, I'm I'm fine. So on that note, the downplaying, a lot of days it's easy for you to feel left behind in this family, mm-hmm. because a lot of days you are left behind. You're the, the doer, the caretaker, the fixer. Mm-hmm. What more should we have done, could we do, to validate this experience for you? Yeah, that's a nice question to ask. You are such a steady person in life. Like, you don't swing. Like, your emotions don't swing too far one way or the other, ever. If they do, they swing more toward excited and happy than worried and sad, generally. To the point where, like, I remember when I was having the kids, I felt like, you are not taking this seriously enough. Like, I have in a lot of pain. (laughs) We'll get through it. Yes, exactly. And I think that sort of reassurance that you had from the doctors, I think that maybe made you not um, think it. Also, I felt like you didn't think it was that big of a deal. And that made me feel like I shouldn't think it was that big of a deal. So I think that like every mom and every wife who feels like they have this role in life that they're, they carry that sort of uh, mental load and physical load too. Um, they just want to feel like they're taken care of. Uh, I felt really taken care of um, by my mom mm-hmm. then. But I do feel like that's been a challenge for you in our relationship to take care of me. I'm sorry to hear that. I think when your mom was here, it's it's difficult for the husband to be the caretaker in the situation because you look to her like you did when you were six years old, eight years old. And she's accustomed to that role. She's wired to that role. And she was here for that reason. The, the complicating emotion I had then is I was angry at you for getting your neck adjusted. And we talked about that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was trying to be as compassionate as I could, but I thought it was so avoidable. And I struggled to balance the complete caretaking with the fact that this had not happen, which was not the kindest thing, but it was a struggle. Yeah, and I remember you saying that to me at some point, kind of when I was asking for more compassion and and for you to take more care of me then. That hurt a lot. I felt enough shame and guilt that I had put myself in a position that could have taken me from my kids. Right. I didn't need it from you, too. I guess I had to work through that. You should have worked through it alone. <laughs> Not with me. That's one of those things that you, keep, that you get, keep from your wife. <laughs> I get off my chest. I should have chose a different party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was a hard time. I've continued to struggle in the time since then. Every year I'm a, I'm reminded of that feeling. Of sort of feeling like it, 
it wasn't a big deal or it wasn't. It was a very big deal to all of us, including me. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's been, you know, I talked about it in the intro to this. Like it's a struggle for me to find this place for my own stuff in the family. And I think it's because if I don't bring it up, it kind of goes by the wayside. And it, I think it's a struggle. This is not like a unique struggle for moms. Um, this is not a unique struggle to me, but it is my struggle. It's our struggle. I think we're working on it, but I definitely, uh, I definitely feel a bit, I guess, taken for granted. Um, I think even in the moments when I talk, we talk about even right after the stroke, like, I think you just kind of always assumed that I would just figure it out. I would be there to do the things. And, you know, that night, when Willow was puking and I needed help getting to the bathroom, like I was not pleased with you that night that you weren't there because she didn't want my mom. And, and I'm glad that Cohen went to that tournament, but those were hard. Those were hard things. These were hard things. Uh, they're not ever just straightforward. I don't think. And, and then your illness has complicated where I land. Right. Because since that day in the four years since there's been, that been was, you know, one of the worst days of our life. Well, we've had so many of those days since then yeah. that it gets gets buried. It's like eight layers down. Yeah, I mean, it was months later that your dad told us he was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And then he died that summer, right? Yeah. That's correct. And then around the time of my one-year mark, you were having your first ALS symptoms. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it came hard and... It's come hard at us, life. So, so yeah, it was a it was a hard thing. I hope I can be that cautionary tale for people. Be careful with your body. I I do have a very deep appreciation for what my body can do now, um, and I have had that since I was able to go back to the gym. But I remember when I did go back to Orange Theory. Like I remember, I was just amazed. Like I was amazed that my legs could run as fast as they could, that they worked the way they did. And now with the stuff that you've lost, I feel that way. You took nothing for granted with your body. No, like, and I'm uh, so much nicer to my body. Like I don't look at my body in the way that I, that I used to, like I go off how my body feels, you know, we all ended up doing too much weekday, weeknight drinking and eating too many baked goods during COVID. But I, and I go off how my body feels. I'm not unkind to my body in the way that it looks because it's temporary. All of this is temporary and it can be changed. I have that power and you don't. And I'm, you know, I'm great. I'm aware of that every time I lug in armfuls of groceries from the car or I untwist a cap from something that I need the leverage of two hands. All these things that are simple for me that my body can just do. I I really appreciate them. And that's because of my stroke and because of your disease. So anyway, just be careful about who you let touch your body. <laughs> And what Especially they do to neck. it. Yeah. Really, really be careful with your neck. But, you know, I've heard of these things happening from different adjustments to lower lower down. Hmm. So it's just be very mindful that, yeah, I might be the, the, the low percentage possibility, but here's what it looks like in real life. And I'm very lucky, very, very lucky that, you know, two months after my stroke, I was, I was doing as... I was so close to being the way I was before and that now there's not really a lot of residual stuff for me at all. So yeah, that's how you have a stroke when you're 34. <laughs> and then there's all the other layers that we folded in there. <laughs> you lived a lot of life when you're 38 years. Mm, we both have. 
thanks for talking about this with me. Of course, I, we should do it more from the sound of it. Sounds good. I love you. Love you too. I've written a few things on my blog about my stroke. I started this episode with one of them and I wanted to finish with another. Before sitting down to talk to Chris, I went back and forth on which one to read here at the end. But after that conversation, after all the emotions that came out that I didn't expect and wasn't really prepared for, I knew which one to read. Here it is. Most people reading this know that in March, at 34 years old, I had a stroke. On social media, most of our friends' life events, whether happy or sad or scary or joyous, exist in a vacuum. We read about them, we comment on them, and then we mostly forget them. But of course, social media is not real life, and nothing happens in a vacuum. And when it comes to trauma, nothing gets tied up neatly with a bow. I've been thinking about this a lot this week, particularly since I finally mustered the courage to return to the gym, which is where my stroke happened. And I keep coming back to the word aftershock. For me, the days and weeks and first few months following my stroke were the aftermath. My health and my condition served as a constant reminder of what had happened to me. There was no escape and no chance to forget even for a moment. Now, though, life is mostly back to normal, except for when it's not. And those are the aftershocks. Sometimes I see them coming, and sometimes they blindside me. Recently, I was at the hospital where I spent six days following my stroke. I went there to deliver a donation of care pouches that my friends and family had sponsored after I had my stroke. I filled them with small things that I wished I'd had during my hospital stay, and the hospital wanted to do a news story on it. I was rushing that day, trying to get to the hospital on time after dropping my daughter at school, and I hadn't spent any time thinking about how the morning might make me feel. I had been back there in the months since my stroke, but I hadn't been on the stroke unit since I'd been discharged. When the elevator doors opened, my heart skipped. The smell overwhelmed me. Flashes of my time there came at me. I saw a nurse I remembered. My palms started sweating. My chest felt tight, but I took some deep breaths and kept going. That time, the aftershock blindsided me. I got through the interviews, but the rest of the day, I felt completely drained. I've learned the aftershocks exhaust you. The gym was an aftershock I saw coming. For months, even the idea of going back made my stomach flip. I told myself I would wait until I knew the tear in my vertebral artery, which is what caused my stroke, had healed. I got that news at a follow-up with my neurologist in July, but I wasn't ready for the gym. I told myself I'd go back when my kids went back to school. Life got in the way of that, and suddenly, it was November. I knew I had to walk head-on into this aftershock, or the anxiety surrounding it would get too big to overcome. So last week I called the gym and asked if I could try a class before I restarted my membership, which had been on hold since my stroke in March. I booked one and put it on my calendar. The night before, I had trouble sleeping. My mind wouldn't quiet. When I was getting ready the next morning, my seven-year-old could tell something was bothering me. I explained I was nervous and that sometimes we have to do things that make us nervous. He hugged me hard and told me I would be great. And so I went. I told the coach that I hadn't been to the gym in seven and a half months and that the last time I was there, I'd had a stroke. She asked me if I was scared. I told her I was terrified and bent down to tie my shoe to avoid crying. The workout was hard, but aside from my pathetic cardiovascular condition, I was okay. My balance during the floor work was an issue, but I knew that would be the case. I did the entire hour-long workout and thought I would feel proud. I felt relieved. Afterward, I got in my car and cried. I thought I'd done it, faced my biggest fear, and come out the other side. Here it was, this one thing at least, wrapped up with a neat little bow, perfect for a social media post. And then on the drive home, the right side of my head and neck, the same side as the artery tear that had caused my stroke, started throbbing. I felt sick and lightheaded and worried. 
I went home and sat down and ate breakfast and tried to convince myself I felt miserable because I'm out of shape and nothing more. I took my daily baby aspirin, which I forgot before I went to the gym. I thought about texting my doctor. Eventually, I started to feel better, and the next day, the only health issues I had were very sore muscles. I was incredibly lucky with my stroke. It was in my cerebellum and so mostly disrupted my balance. I had no paralysis, no speech impediments. I went home with a walker and a cane and a cache of pills, but also with a positive prognosis. Still, I had a stroke at 34 years old. I have a habit of minimizing things that happen to me, and I do it with my stroke as well. But I've learned that the aftershocks come no matter how often you tell yourself that what happened to you wasn't that bad. I've learned they are scary and they are consuming and they are real. And I've learned that to make them go away, I have to let myself feel them. Trauma lingers. It sneaks up on you. And sometimes it squeezes you so tight you think you can't move. But you do. You put one foot in front of the other. Off the elevator. Into the hall. Through the doors of the gym. Onto the treadmill. You just keep going. This conversation with Chris was real life. I didn't have a single note written down. We sat across from each other and just talked. I didn't anticipate the aftershocks I experienced in talking with him about this time in our lives. Though I suppose considering I spent lots of time talking about downplaying my stroke, it makes sense that I have some unresolved sadness and grief surrounding it. I said in this episode that I'm not unique in feeling taken for granted, that as the mom and wife and caretaker, I come in last place. That will sound familiar to so many women listening. I've long said that Chris and I aren't perfect. I do think that his illness has put us on some sort of a pedestal in some people's minds. We don't have a perfect marriage. No one does, of course. Throw in an extended illness and things only get more complicated. A disease like Chris's only adds layers of extra guilt and worry and fear and sadness to every disagreement. None of this is easy, but there is deep abiding love between us and every single day we wake up and make the decision to choose each other again. And that, I suppose, is what makes it possible to get back to solid ground when an aftershock, whether from my stroke or Chris's ALS, knocks us off our footing. One more reminder that if you value this podcast and these conversations and want to show your support, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow, that's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W, to become a member. For the monthly cost of one latte, you can help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and get access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. Thanks, as always, for listening. The past is now.